Would you stay standing, and if you have a Bible with you, turn around and grab it, and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 will be our passage this morning. We'll read the first first nine verses to start. We'll get to more later, but let us now turn to God's word and read this together. 1 Samuel 8 says this, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, and so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Father, we've already asked for your blessing on your word and it being preached this morning. We only ask more specifically after reading these nine verses that you'd keep us from turning to other kings, other gods. We pray you'd keep us. We pray you'd satisfy us. You would lead us. You would rule over us in love, in grace, in truth, in obedience. Glorify your son, the Lord Jesus, who died in our place and was raised on the third day, in whom there is forgiveness, and whose word we read now. We pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, last Sunday we looked at 1 Samuel 7, and it was a high water mark for the people of God in the Old Testament. It's a chapter of repentance and revival and beautiful restoration. You find obedience from the people, you find prayer happening, sacrifice and intercession, trust in God, and God working powerfully, his blessings being fleshed out in military victory, the Lord thundering against Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines. You see Israel taking back the land in 1 Samuel 7. We see that they weren't bothered by the Philistines for many years more. They now have peace with former enemies, the Amorites. And Samuel, Israel's last and best judge, he judged them. Not in a bad way, in a good way. He was a prophet-like, priest-like, king-like judge who preached to them, who led them. He interceded for them. He pled with them. He governed them. So it seems as though God's promises of old are drawing nigh. 
The fulfillment of God's plan is coming to pass. Progress has taken place. This thing's moving forward, it seems. But the happy and hopeful story of 1 Samuel 7, last week we read it with a bit of a wince, didn't we? We winced a little bit at the end because of what might be around the corner. Because we've seen a pattern take place in the book of 1 Samuel. It's often like this in the whole of the Old Testament, but especially in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. It seems as though there's a, a good story and then a bad story. A bad story and then a good story. You can almost predict the next story, whatever it is, will be the inverse of the one that was before it. That isn't always the case. Sometimes it's several bad in a row or a couple good in a row. But we've seen again and again, for instance, the bad going to good in chapter 7 and then the good turning to bad in chapter 8. But the bad of chapter 8 that we've read already in these first nine verses, though bad, it's for our good. It's for our good. 1 Samuel 8 exposes the heart of Israel at that time. Yes, but it it exposes the heart of humanity. It, It exposes the heart of human sin at any time, in any place, at every age. That human sin that's within all of us apart from grace. As we'll see, the kingship of Israel, though 3,000 years ago, is extremely relevant for us. Not because it shows us what kind of government to have, or whether this one's bad or this one's better, but because it shows us what kind of problem we all have. It's not about politics so much in 1 Samuel 8, though that's certainly there. It's about God's kingship. It's about God's reign in human hearts, and our rejection of it. But before we dig into 1 Samuel, verse, uh, chapter 8, we should talk about kingship just a bit. Kingship is all over this book. Really, that's what it's about. We've been calling this series, In Search of the King. That's what 1 Samuel's about, and here we get to chapter 8, and from here forward, it's going to be about a king, or two kings, or the king to come, that kind of thing. It's about kingship. And if we're going to enter those waters of Israel's kingship, we have to remember what came before it in God's plan. Such as Genesis 17, where God promised to Abraham, kings shall come from you. Or what God repeated to Jacob in Genesis 35, Kings shall come from your own body, your own seed, your offspring. Or in Genesis 49, where God promised that from the line of Judah would be a lion-like ruler. And a ruler of the peoples, plural even. We also should think of Deuteronomy 17. Here is a key passage. Deuteronomy 17, there Moses says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me. You see how relevant this is? I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. 
you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. So there's the first condition. Whom the Lord your God will choose. But then Moses goes on to give several other stipulations or qualifications for this coming king. He says he must be one from among you, not an outsider. That makes sense. He must not acquire. He can't acquire horses or wives or riches. He can't be a king who just gathers and gathers and gathers or else he'll be led astray. He must write out the whole law for himself, make his own copy, and then he must read it day by day. He must read it over and over again. Why? Well, because he must live in the fear of God, Moses says. He must follow in God's ways and rule according to God's commandments, so he has to know the law. And lastly, Moses says, his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. He must be humble. He must be a caring and humble kind of king. In other words, Deuteronomy 17 makes sure that Israel's future king will ultimately not be like the kings of the nations around them. He'll be a counter king. He'll be different. At least he should be. We go a little further in the story and we see that verse we keep quoting in this series so far. The end of Judges. At that time there were judges but there was no king. And it wasn't a good time for Israel. In those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's this anticipation a king's coming. And then we turn the pages a few and get to 1 Samuel and it's still the day of judges. There's still no king. But there's this one, Hannah, who gives birth to a Samuel. And when she does, she prays. And when she prays, she ends on this note. The Lord will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. So a king is clearly coming. But who is it? And what kind of king will he be or should he be? When will he come and how will he come? Okay, put all that on ice now as we dig into 1 Samuel 8. We'll come back to the kingship in just a bit. But first, a familiar problem. It begins with a familiar problem. A good leader with bad sons. It's verses 1 through 3. It begins when Samuel became old. We're not told how old. We're not told how much time has passed since the good old days of chapter 7 into the beginning of chapter 8. It's possible for you to think that Samuel's older than he is. If you're thinking Samuel's old and that's why he appointed his sons as judges, you'd be a little bit mistaken. He is old. He's called old twice in these verses, but he's not on his deathbed. It's not that he can't do anything. Samuel doesn't die till 1 Samuel 28. At least two, maybe three decades from here in 1 Samuel 8. He's probably to that age, though, where you begin to hand some things off. You begin to delegate some more. Maybe you don't travel quite like you used to. And so he appoints his sons. We're not told whether he should have or not. 
we know it's not a great situation, it's supposed to remind us of chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that? Chapter 2, verse 12, there's there another leader of Israel, and he also has two sons. And what did it say there? Eli, the high priest, had two sons. They were worthless men, and they didn't know the Lord. It's very reminiscent here as we begin in chapter 8, introduced to two new sons. They have hopeful names. Joel means Yahweh is God. Abijah means Yahweh is our father. Presumably they're raised well by godly Samuel, probably better than Eli raised his wicked sons. But that doesn't guarantee parental success. That proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. It's a principle, not necessarily a promise. It's generally a principle. God often blesses like that, but not always. Not always. So verse 3 describes these sons. They did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. What irony. They're judges without justice. Like Eli's sons, they're about gaining, getting. Eli's sons were stealing and getting fat from it. And here Samuel's sons turn aside to bribes and are all about the money. That's a problem. There's a dilemma here. Yes, Samuel will go on for another couple of decades or so to to lead the nation, to make decisions, to, to be a spiritual leader of the people. But the writing's on the wall. You don't know how long Samuel's gonna last. And what is he doing? He's putting his wicked sons as successors. What's the solution? Well, we're not told what the solution should have been, but we're shown what the solution was and shouldn't have been. That's the second point in your notes. A godless solution. A godless solution. How about a king like the nations? Now, of five points that I have this morning, this one will take a bit longer than the rest because it's such a turning point in the story. Here's the turning point, verses 4 and 5. The elders gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, your old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. In many ways, their request seems logical, practical. I mean, there was that problem of Samuel's sons and Samuel's old age and the uncertainty of the future, and they're looking for something. In many ways, their request was simply in line with what God had promised of old, right? We saw in Deuteronomy 17. When you get to the land and you say, appoint us a king, you may appoint yourself a king. From one angle, the people are rightly seeing the inadequacy of hereditary leadership. When authority is simply passed down to the next generation... It's a giant question mark. Will it go well? Will it go bad? Will he be good? Will he be bad? We don't know. 
But from another angle, their reasoning is just plain dumb. I mean, how ironic is it that they're concerned about the problem of hereditary judges and they seek to solve that problem with hereditary kings? It doesn't solve the problem, right? Maybe the first king will be good, but what about the next one, the next one, the next one? The problem you have with Samuel and his sons is a problem you will have eventually in the future. And yet in the rest of redemptive history, God will not only show us through the Old Testament again and again the ugly consequences of of hereditary leadership and how the godly often pass the baton to the ungodly. But in God's grace and mercy, don't we also know that he will ultimately lead that hereditary kingship to the promised one, the Messiah, the final son of David, Jesus. That's how we get world salvation. God is so good. Hereditary leadership is is silly and bad and has all kinds of consequences and bad stories to go along with it. And yet God is in it and using it, and that's how we are saved. But back to 1 Samuel 8, the request for a king, really their demand for a king, is not just wrong, I mean, not just dumb, it's just plain wrong and wicked and and sinful. Not because God was against monarchies. No, we saw that already. There's a promised one, a one to come. There's a king. He's been talking about kings since Genesis 17. The problem of 1 Samuel 8, then, is the people's motivation. Motivation. Some things are not bad or wrong by themselves, but they're sought for such wrong reasons, they're altogether wrong. It's the whole picture that's, that's just marred and, and broken, and, and it's not the thing itself that was sought, it's the reason for it that was sought that is the key problem. I have three daughters. Most likely, each one will one day get married. If you want to donate to the Kelly Wedding Fund, go for it. That's not why I bring it up, though. That'll be a hard yet happy day for me as a dad, as some of you know firsthand. It'll be a happy day because that's what they're supposed to do, right? That's what I've been praying for. I've been praying for a godly husband one day to take over and to lead and to care and to love. I want that to happen for my girls. But not yet, (laughs) right? They're 14, 13, and 11. Not yet! Imagine that one of my girls comes to me tomorrow and says, Daddy, I'm going to get married this weekend. I met this guy at the Circle K. He was there looking for a job. And you can pray for him because he's having a hard time getting a job since he just got out of prison. I know it seems sudden, but we're going to get married. We're in love, really in love. We knew it as soon as we saw each other. And besides, I really need someone to care for me, provide for me, love me, lead me. So we're going to get married this weekend at the Circle K. (laughs) What would I say to that? Well, after some words that I can't repeat in church, I would say, no, not now, 
Not him. Not like this. Not for these dumb reasons. But it's not because marriage as an institution is wrong. Not because I don't think that's in the future. Marriage at the right time to the right guy is not a rejection of me as their father. That's the plan. But this Circle K wedding is a full-on rejection of me as their father. So girls, don't ever do that. <laughs> well, that's so similar to what Israel's doing in 1 Samuel 8. A future king is part of the plan. But Israel... Not now, not like this, not for these dumb reasons. Trust him, wait on him. The passage tells us why this is so wrong. It tells us in verse 5 that they want to be like all the nations. They want a king like all the nations. Every, king, every kingdom around them has a king And theirs has this weird judge thing. God is king, but you can't see him. They must have felt like they were in the stone ages. Here now they're in the bronze age and and kings are mighty. And and so they want to be like these nations. They don't want to stand out as weird and have an invisible God tell them what to do through a judge. But, But give us a king now so we can be like them. And they want a certain kind of king, don't they? A king, like all the nations have, is really what they're getting at. We want a certain kind of king, a military, powerful king. It says so in verse 20, if we can sneak ahead there. In verse 20, after Samuel rebukes them and they're persistent in wanting a king, they say again, No, we want a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They felt scared, insecure. The threat of the opposing nations around them was always real and looming. And and Samuel's getting old. His sons are wicked and there's no Samson anymore. There's no Gideon anymore. Who's going to lead us? We need a king like the nations have. They always had the tallest guy as the king. The guy who's mighty and strong, a commander of the army. You know, a a real General Schwarzkopf kind of guy, except probably more handsome, a little skinnier maybe. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're wanting for their security. But God said He would be this for them. He insisted he would go before them. He's proven that in chapter 5. Remember that? When the ark marched through the Philistine land and wiped everyone out. He proved it again in chapter 7. They prayed and God won the victory because he brought the Philistines into confusion miraculously. That's what he did in the past. Not just chapter 5 and chapter 7, but but long ago. Like in Deuteronomy 31 where it was promised, the Lord your God himself will go over before you. Remember, that's what they said in 1 Samuel 8. We want a king who will go before us and win our battles. 
Well, in Deuteronomy 31, it was promised that God will destroy these nations before you. The Lord will give them over to you. So be strong and courageous and do not fear or be in dread of them. For it's the Lord who goes with you. He won't leave you or forsake you. It's the Lord who goes before you. He'll be with you. He won't leave you or forsake you. So don't fear or be dismayed. And the Psalms, again and again, look back in history and and see God's hand of power working mightily and in subversive ways, in inversive ways. It's like it, it looks weak and then, boom, he shows up in glory and wins the day. So Psalm 44 says, Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old, with your own arm, your own hand, you drove out the nations. For not by their sword did they win the land, nor did their arm save them, but your right hand and your arm saved them. This is what we'll see from a young man named David several chapters from now in the book of 1 Samuel. There when he faces off against that giant Philistine, Goliath, he says in 1 Samuel 17, the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. David got what the elders should have got in 1 Samuel 8. The Lord will go before you. The battle is the Lord's. The Lord will fight your battles. And because they're replacing this king, this human king, with God, I'm sorry, the other way around, since they're replacing God with this human king, like the nations, they're, in essence, rejecting God. It's not just that they want a king like the nations, they don't want Yahweh, God. God says so. In verse 7, 1 Samuel 8, he says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me from being king over them. Oh, rejecting God and his rule from your life from your nation, from your future. How scary. Their pleading was impatient because they're not waiting for God's timing or God's man. They're not wanting to to wait on God to raise up that man. They're, They're being rebellious and rejecting God. They're being faithless in in wanting to be able to see a leader and him be strong. How pathetic would would an eight-foot king be compared to Yahweh God? And yet they say, we need something tangible, something we can see, something we can trust in because we've seen him do stuff and we can look at him and touch him or know his name. God's kingship... And God's working through power, uh, working power through weakness, is what made Israel, Israel. That's what made them stand out among the nations. And that was God's plan so that he got the glory. So one commentator on 1 Samuel 8 says, 
in essence here, Israel was tired of being Israel. And yet here's how sneaky sin is. If we could go back in time and interview these elders who who made this request to, to have a king in Israel, we ask them why, they would have probably talked about things like security. They would have talked about protection and dependability, reliability, consistency, and order. And those are things that are pretty good. Those are things we like. Those are things we know really well in our culture today, right? There are goals and ideals as well. We want security. We want protection. We want dependability. We we want consistency. We want predictability. These things aren't bad. But at what cost do we pursue them? What's their priority in relationship to God and his ways and his plan? You see, it's a mistake to think that a new system or a new mechanism will be the answer to a crisis. It's a mistake to think that a fresh start is what you need when the problem is really big and bad. That's what Israel did. But the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. The problem really wasn't Samuel's sons. Problematic from one angle, yes. Perhaps wrong, yes. Less than ideal, for sure. But Israel should have known God can wipe out wicked leaders in a day. He did it in 1 Samuel 4. He can wipe them out in a day. God's not threatened by Samuel's sons. They should have prayed. They should have trusted. The problem in 1 Samuel 8 then is in the heart of the people such that a little hiccup comes along and it throws them into disbelief and even rejection of God. How scary to think that Turning to and focusing on a merely human, pragmatic solution could be a rejection of Almighty God. God help us. Thirdly, we see in this passage a vivid warning. A vivid warning. This king will take, take, Now we come to some new verses. Let's read what Samuel said. In verse 9, God, speaking to Samuel, said, Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And listen for take. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he'll he'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be slaves And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. How tragic. How stubborn. How different than chapter 7. Man, they will have before them the king who will take and take, and take. Six times in the English text, it says he'll take. Over and over again, we see this contrast between what's yours and then what becomes his, 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 him, for himself. Ultimately, it will lead to basically another Egypt-like slavery. This king will lead you back to Egypt without you having to move a mile. The thing that God did, he'll bring you back to it. How different is this kind of taking king than the king who is God? In Psalm 50, God said, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't get hungry, number one. But number two, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you like I need something. I'd just go get a cow. I got a cow in a thousand hills. God says in that same psalm, call upon me instead in the day of trouble, when you're in trouble, and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is the way it flows. You have need and I give, I help, and you glorify me. I don't have need and you give. I give, I give, I give. Paul said in Acts 17, the Lord of heaven and earth He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. But instead, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is who our God is. He gives. He is our help. We see over and over in the Bible. He is our strength. He is our life, our portion. Fill in the blank. He is ours. He is our God. He does us good. There's a vivid warning here. One that apparently has forgotten the ways of God. It's confronting Israel in their desire for a king. This king will take and take and take. But then fourthly, we see a tragic outcome. We could call it getting what you want. The tragic outcome of getting what you want is in verses 19 and following here, the people respond to Samuel's pleas like this. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Like like petulant brats. No, there shall be a king over us. They say this to the prophet of God, to the judge, the the ruler of the land, God's man. No, there'll be a king over us. 
so we can be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Whew. How tragic again. How stubborn. How, how wayward and wicked and bent and broken. How forgetful they've been. And yet, how did God respond? Verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Repeat it twice. Samuel, obey their voice. They won't obey yours. You will obey them by my command. And God isn't saying give them a king, Samuel, because mm, God's in a fix. What else is he going to do? They really want a king? All right. It's not a gracious thing. He's not saying, Samuel, give them a king because it's not ideal for them, but like chocolate before dinner, go ahead. Because I'm nice. Just this once. No, this is judgment, isn't it? This is judgment. God relinquishes them over to their request to deal with the consequences. This is sowing what you reap. He's saying, you want a king? You want a king like the nations? You want a king that you appoint when you appoint him? And then Samuel warns them and they insist. And, oh, you want a king? You want a king like the nations? You want one who will fight your battles for you? Have at it. You got it. Often in scripture, God's judgment comes in the form of giving sinners over to what they want. In Romans 1, you see that. God gives them over to their sin so that it snowballs. The sin grows worse, and so does the judgment. God letting them go is part of the judgment. It's part of the temporary judgment that will eventually end in the eternal one. When I was a kid growing up, maybe age six or seven, our house backed up to a, a big park, couple acre park. So our backyard was like this giant park almost, no fence. And in the middle of this park was this playground area, you know, one of the big slides and different platforms and that. And I played there all the time. Again, it was like my big backyard. I played there so much that I imagined living there at times, especially when I didn't like my mom, when I didn't like what she said I couldn't do. So a number of times, I would threaten, I'm going to go live in the park. And I did it enough that eventually my mom said, okay, you can. Of course, she could see me. It was safe. It was 1980. No kids got kidnapped back then, apparently. <laughs> Parents let kids do anything back then. So she let me go. I packed up my stuff, and I don't know what I packed, but I, I got enough stuff to go out there and camped out under one of, those, one of those roofs, looked around. I can do whatever I want. What am I going to do? <laughs> what what I think I was going to do? I mean, in short order, I had to use the bathroom. Where's the toilet? I didn't think about a toilet, Right? Eventually, I'm sure, I thought, how do I make food? What do I do here? What, what did I think I was going to get? 
And of course, I went home, and as you can imagine. It's good sometimes to be given what you want so that you see what it's not. It's almost like 1 Samuel 8's an inverse of that, though, because God gives them what they want, and they don't see it. They don't see it. It forced me to go home and to enjoy what I had and to think that rules aren't such a bad thing. I didn't know what I wanted to do anyway. Well, Israel's worried and threatened, and so they look for a king. I was on the outside in the elements, and I, I felt threatened out there. Israel doesn't see it. They don't see it yet. They don't see it even though the prophet, the judge, God himself has warned them. 1 Samuel 8 exposes the heart of Israel at that time, but it it exposes the heart of human sin at any time, at any place, in any age, within all of us, apart from grace. The heart of sin is dethroning God. That's what happened in the garden. The serpent tempted Eve by saying, Eat of the tree and you shall be like God. This is the universal human problem. We may not believe in kings. You may be thinking this is very irrelevant to you. The story in 1 Samuel 8 and the story of Israel's kings. You may be thinking, we don't like kings in America. I mean, we, we don't like presidents. We sure don't like kings. We got a, we got a history with kings We are anti-king, so don't worry, Brian. We're not going to ask some preacher or some constitutional congress to make us a king. I'll never say make us a king. Yeah, I know, I know. But, But boy, this is close to home, isn't it? Because it's the question of who rules you? Who makes the rules? You? How's that going? Feel like a scared little boy sitting under a playground wondering what's next who or what do you trust in there's your king what do you trust in what do you turn to when things are scary when things are bad there's your king might be you it might be a president a government educational system could be mom and dad oh it could be a million things I pray it's God Israel looked to the nations around them to see what to turn to what seemed right and what looked strong and what looked safe and so now a king's coming we end 1 Samuel 8 knowing that there's a king coming That leads us to the last point. A king is coming, but what kind? What kind will it be? In upcoming weeks, we'll see the inauguration and subsequent stories of Israel's first king. We're left wondering at this point, will he be one of the people's own choosing? Will he be one like the nations have? Will he be one who takes and takes and takes? Will he be one of disappointment? Will he be good but simply die like Samuel? And he can't pass his goodness on to the next guy. 
What will Israel's king be like? Well, here's what we need, both then and now. We need a king who's chosen by God, one of God's own choosing. We need one who follows after God, like Deuteronomy 17 talked about, who knows God's ways, does God's ways, and leads in God's ways. We need a king who is like God. Like God in this sense, he is for the people, not taking from the people. He's good to the people, and he works powerfully through weakness, because that's how God works. That's how God gets glory. That's God's story to show his great, infinite power through crazy, seemingly weak, unsuspected means. And all through the Old Testament, we see glimmers of that kind of king. One chosen by God, one who knows God and follows after God, one, one who is like God and that he's good and for the people. We see glimmers of that kind of king through the Old Testament, but we also see so many dark shadows or inverses of that kind of king until one comes. Until one comes. And here's how he leads. Here's how he rules. He gets down on his knees with a towel and a bowl, and he washes his friend's feet. He's a king who comes into the city on his victory march, not on a steed, but on a humble donkey. He's a king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20, 28. Jesus said, I came not to serve, but to not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for the rebels, for the wayward. You're going to have a king on the throne of your heart and life. Who is it going to be? Self? How's that going? Is it going to be a, a king of your own making? A king who seems good today, but you, you know deep down he'll be let down tomorrow. How many kings have you had, you think? A new one every day, a new one every week. That guy, your guy, that, that president, he's your guy. Maybe the next one, that one didn't work out. I, what? Well, maybe we'll look to sports for the answer. There are some good role models for us. It's just all hopeless around us, isn't it? And we know we need protection. We know we need security. We know we need leadership. We know we need sacrifice. We need a king. And Jesus is the only one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And yet, just like God's good, kind kingship in 1 Samuel that was rejected by the people so Jesus came as a humble, sacrificial king and was rejected. 
Would you turn with me to Luke 23 as we wrap this up? We only have a couple more minutes left. But I think we should go to a passage, Luke 23, that's clearly a parallel with what's happening in 1 Samuel 8. First, uh, Luke 23 is a passage on the rejection of Jesus. A rejection from the people, the people of God. Even the elders, you could say, the leaders. This is when Jesus is before Pilate. And so picking up in verse 13 of Luke 23, we read, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man! And release to us instead Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! The third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. You see something very similar in John 19 where they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. They turn to the nations for kingship once again. Isn't it amazing that Jesus, in his rejection, became our ransom? The word ransom means payment. I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many, a payment for sins. Jesus upon the cross is our hope for our sins being washed white, washed clean, removed, buried, hidden, taken care of. Payment made and reconciliation granted. Only in Jesus can our sins, our dethroning of God, be canceled out. Only in Jesus can God's gloriously strong and personal kingship be restored in our lives. How sweet his reign is. It is good to trust him. It is right to trust him. It is good and right for us to put all allegiance under King Jesus, to obey him and follow him gladly, to have no rivals, to be confident that he's the Lord and he'll do us good. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, some trust in princes or 
kings, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. We will not view our problems merely according to what is practical and physical without the spiritual. We learn that from 1 Samuel 8. We we won't address our crises in life with mere systems or mechanisms or something new. We will not prescribe for God what our problems need for fixing because he knows infinitely better than us. We will not assess things merely by what seems rational or practical or necessary. We will not view life short-sightedly, but with the eyes of faith and on eternity. Because Christ is the king. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus' blood and righteousness. We thank you for his humble reign. We thank you for his sacrifice, righteousness, and care for us. And yet also his glorious power. We thank you that you've exalted him above all names. And at his name, the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Every knee will bow to your glory. As Christians, Lord, we pray that we would trust your wisdom and your goodness, your timing and your your mysterious ways. We pray we would look to your man, the God-man, Jesus. And we would give him all allegiance and worship and trust, both now and forever. So help us now to sing of his glorious reign, to his glory, and for our good. Amen.